Hello and welcome. I'm glad you're with us. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. The third chapter of 1 Thessalonians, we're going to be speaking on the subject of a pastor's heart as we look at the Apostle Paul specifically and his concern for the faith of the Thessalonian church. And I wish to compare it uh, by way of contrast perhaps to our heart as to how we care for one another as members of the church. So we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. This whole passage or this whole thought goes through verses 1 through 10. Today we will only cover verses 1 through 4 where Paul says, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. But you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulations just as it happened. And you know, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest, some, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might have been in vain. But now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect that which is lacking in your faith." What a magnificent passage. And in this you see the heart of Paul, who is the founder of the church, who demonstrates for us what the heart of a pastor should look like. But I don't believe that this text just tells us just what a pastor's heart should look like. I believe this passage tell us, tells us what a believer's heart should look like. And so I'm going to use uh, Paul's pastoral heart as the thesis of this passage to speak to us about how we as believers should care for one another, whether we're pastors or elders or deacons or just members of the church. Um, and, you know, whether you're a pastor, an elder, or a deacon, you are just a member of the church. And so this really is a message for all of us, not exclusively for those in church leadership. And I hope you'll receive it as such and draw from this magnificent example of Paul's concern for the faith of the Thessalonians. So anyone who serves at church as a pastor or as elder or as a leader realizes that the scriptural requirements for the office of elder or pastor or deacon, there's a high bar. It's not a bar of perfection, but it is a high bar nonetheless. And it's one that uh, carries with it consequences if, if one fails to meet it, um, I think, in a high-handed manner. Uh, I think that, that all of us are prone to fall. I know there have been times in my own ministry that I probably have been uh, on the edge of not being able to continue just because of my own pugnacity. And uh, 
But uh, to, to be honest with you, it is, it is a standard by which we are to live up to. And the more we try to meet the standard, the better we are at capturing uh, the essence of what it's about. Um, there are some things in ministry that, that you just simply cannot do and that if you do those things, you forfeit the right to, to be a minister. And uh, that is something I carry with me every single day. Uh, not because I would lose my livelihood, but it is as Joseph said to Potiphorus when he was uh, in, embroiled in the scandal where she wanted to have an affair with him. He said, how can I do these things to the Lord my God? And uh, that's, that's how I choose to live. And, uh, but still wind up uh, being a great sinner who has a great Savior. But that's not what this message is about. But anyone that knows that bears the burden of these offices of the church, they carry a high, they carry a high bar to meet. But all of us, in addition to that, must carry on in the way that the Apostle Paul has shown us here in his example for his concern for the church at Thessalonica. And so you know, we, we in church leadership understand the important issues uh, that we face, but it is important for church members to understand the issues that pastors face as well. And uh, that's what Paul says here in chapters 1 and 2. He talks about um, a good example of a good church, and he gives a, a, a good example of... of uh, a, a, a wafty example of what a pastor is to look like in chapter 2. And he reveals his con true concerns as a pastor in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1. He says, We give thanks to God always for you in making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your faith, your labor of love, and the patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Down here in verse 5 he says, uh, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and much assurance, as you know, that of what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Over here in chapter 2 in verses 2 through 4, he says, um, But even after we had suffered before we were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much uh, conflict, for our exhortation did not come from error, uncleanliness, nor was it in a deceit, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not pleasing men, but God who tested our hearts. He goes on in verses 5 through 9 where he says, "Neither, For neither at any time did we use flattering words, or as you know, a cloak of covetousness. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ." But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Verses 9 through 11, he says, For you remembered, brethren, our labor and toil from laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you uh, the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. And then finally in verse 13 he says, For this reason we thank God without ceasing, because you received the word of God which you heard from us, and you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as in truth the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe." And so 
The whole idea is that, that the issues that, that Paul brought to them was the issue of the gospel. And he brought it as, as, as pure a vessel as a pure vessel could be. Uh, without conceit or without selfishness, without covetousness or flattering words, he came as a teacher. And he taught them. And uh, so as earlier noted, through his inspired pen and of his, of his pastoral attitudes, Paul had this for the church. He was thankful for them. That's one of the things we see. He's thankful for the church. He appreciated their testimony. He was encouraged by what he had heard about them. He loved them and he longed to be with them. These are things that, are, that we can lift right out of this text. This is how he was. Let me ask you a question. Does that just, does, is that just for him? No, it should be for us. How about, are we thankful for each other in the church? Um, are we, do we appreciate the testimony of each other in the church? Do we appreciate the testimony of our church? Are, are, we, encouraged of, would, are we encouraged when we hear about what happens in our church? What about do we love our church? Do we love our church for what we can get out of it or what we put into it? Uh, do, what, do we, what is it? And, and then do we long to be with our church? Do we long to be with the church? Do we long to be with the church? Maybe where you are, do you long to be with the church that you belong to? During the past year with the pandemic, have you longed to be with church? Have you, have you longed to be part of the body of God or have you just simply longed to be with people? Uh, have you longed to be with people in holy worship, convened under the, the, the authentic preaching of the Word of God and authentic worship offered up to God? Not with flowery words, not with what you can get out of it, but what you can put into it, what you can give into it. And that the peace of God that passes understanding from, through godly prayer in a time of worship, to have your needs met or to meet the needs of others. These are things that we need to ask ourselves and here he records matters related to Timothy himself in this passage specifically because he's going to send Timothy as we'll see down here in verse 6. Or actually Timothy has been sent and has come back and given the report. Um, you know, he recorded matters related to Timothy and himself in connection with the church. And he opened his heart even more and expressed concern for them that they be much more focused in a specific way. Um, because his forced separation from the Thessalonians seemed only to intensify his pastoral concern for them. He was worried they'd be carried away. He's worried that they would be tempted. He was worried that they would be uh, moved off of their high ground uh, for something else. And Paul's narrative implies seven elements of his exemplary pastoral's heart, which I want to give you in, in over the next, over today and the next time we're together. Um, we're going to look at these seven things. You have his affection for his people, his sacrifice for them, his compassion for them. That's what we're going to cover today. But next time we're going to see the protectiveness, the protectiveness that he had towards them, the delight, the delight in seeing them, the gratitude he had for them, and the intercession he made for them. Let me ask you again, do you have an affection for God's people? Do you have an affection for the people of God's church that you belong to? Would you sacrifice for them? Would you sacrifice for them? Would you have compassion for them? Could you show both grace and mercy to those that are, as one says, surely the least of these? And so the reality is, I want to begin with this, the pastor's affection for his people. The pastor's affection for his people. Number one, 
the pastor's affection for his people. Notice he says, therefore, when we could endure it no longer. When we could endure it no longer. This passage opens with a therefore. It opens with a therefore, which tells us specifically it is linked to the previous passage that follows, uh, that preceded it. Excuse me. It, it, it closes off the preceding passage of the previous cha chapter because of Paul's attitude towards the Thessalonian believers. For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could not endure it any longer. So you see it completes what you have in verse in chapter 2 at the last verse, and it moves straight into chapter 3, verse 1. So he is continuing. He could no longer endure it. That is, he could no longer tolerate his distance from his spiritual children at Thessalonica, and that the consequent lack of knowledge of their, of their condition was of great um, contemplation for him. Paul's strong affection for them resulted in intense emotional pain during his forced separation. Now, I don't believe it was anxiety that he had. Anxiety is the concept of worry. We read in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, be anxious for nothing. In other words, don't be strangled by anything. So I don't want you to get the idea that he was anxious for the Thessalonian church because that would be contrary to what he taught about the Philippian church. Uh, he wasn't anxious. Um, he was genuinely contemplative about their situation. Um, even though he faced his own trials, as we see here in verse 7, where he says, Brethren, in all our afflictions and distress, we were comforted concerning you. So he's facing his own issues. Paul was more concerned about his people's spiritual well-being in the midst of their difficulties. In fact, his affection for them was so strong, as he says in verse 5 of chapter 3, he says, I cannot endure it any longer. He says it twice. Notice in verse 1, therefore we could, we could no longer endure it. Look at verse 5, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it. He says it twice. That's, the, that's why I broke the passage down for our study from verses 1 through 4 and then 5 through 10 is because it starts with the same phrase, we could no longer endure it. And so the love was far more than a sentimental desire. The love was far more than a sentimental desire for social fellowship with the church. That is, it was Paul's desire to help the Thessalonians fulfill God's calling to be loyal to the truth and to experience spiritual maturity in their lives. Now I want you to recall something as discussed in the previous chapter. He says the enemies of the gospel forced Paul and his companions to leave Thessalonica, creating a potentially dangerous situation. And we know this because all we have to do is go over to the book of Acts. Go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And we're going to look at verses 29 through 32. He says right here, for I know this, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember what for three years I did not cease in warning everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who were sanctified. Notice he didn't say fight them. He didn't say run them off. He didn't say do anything. He said, I commend you to the Word of God and its grace that will build you up. And so I want you to see something. 
right there we learn that there was a reason for him to be praying about them. There was a reason for him to be letting them rent space in his mind because there was a genuine threat to the church at Thessalonica. It was brand new. And it said there's not only going to be an outside forces coming in against it, there's going to be people inside rising up trying to take other people away. And I will tell you, any of us that have pastored churches, we are certainly aware of this. We have seen this happen over and over again, and it's just par for the course. Um, there are people that come in from the outside with ulterior motives, and then there's people that you love and you trust and you, you pour your heart into. They betray you and they steal people away from you. This is just the way it is. It's not going to change. And church people, you need to quit reacting to that. You need to quit. You need to respond to it and say, if it, if, it, if it was good enough to happen to Paul, it's good enough to us. All we have to do is maintain the spirit of grace and mercy. We need to always persist in doing good and resist the evil. We don't have to fight it. We just resist it. We persist in doing good. We resist the evil. You know, you can live that way in your life every day. And what's good? You know, Jesus said, hey, you say that I'm good. How do you know what good is? How do you know what I'm good? You know what it is? You just do what the Lord commands. That's what good. You do that part and resist the evil. You just know what the good is. The evil will take care of itself. And so, as discussed in the previous chapter, we see this. There's this increased uh, contemplation about their situation. And a man with a true and faithful pastoral heart is not concerned about his own success or reputation. Rather, he is preoccupied with his own trials. And I think if you, I th or excuse me, he's rather preoccupied nor is he preoccupied with his own trials. I think if you, if you stepped into my home and you sat with my children and my wife, you would, you would hear them say that the concern of, of their dad and their husband is always his church that he pastors. Um, the men that trained me to be pastors, those, those were those kind of men. Um, they were not concerned about nickels and noses. Uh, uh, buildings and sticks and stones and things that you can build up. They were concerned about the congregation. They were not concerned about wh whether they had need or whether they had, they had lack. Um, we have learned, I think, by the grace of God to be content in whatever situation He puts us in. And, and it has been tough. And uh, we don't complain about it. People would be surprised maybe even to hear that. But that's God's work. That's God's work. To have a pastor's heart to be, to be true and faithful, not concerned about one's own success and not preoccupied with one's own trial, but rather to be deeply concerned about the spiritual condition of the people he's called to serve, for whom he will, for whom he will suffer and rejoice with an unflagging attention. I, I tell you, there, I am very concerned in my own heart about some folks that I dearly love. I, I am extremely concerned about their spiritual condition. Um, it, it, it bothers me. Just, just before I came on camera, I was, I was speaking to the Lord about it. it I am deeply, deeply uh, in a place of contemplation because of the, the, presume, the presumed righteous ignorance that some have. And... Uh, I'm going to tell you this, those who fight with a sword are going to die by it. Those are the words of Jesus. He has given us His gospel, and it, we're getting to a place today where people are so inoculated with the gospel 
which is the power of God unto salvation, that they act like they are inoculated from learning anything else. And consequently, whether intended or not, they give the appearance of conceit. And when you're a conceited friend, you cannot learn. It is impossible for you to learn. And so Paul exhibited a kind of spiritual care no matter what the response was. In fact, he wrote in, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls if I love you more and I am to be loved less. That is truly, truly the sacrifice a pastor must come to grips with. To love his people more, he must choose to be loved less. Was that not the very thing that John the Baptist said at finding Jesus Christ? He said, he must increase and I must decrease. Was it not John the Baptist of whom Jesus Christ said there was no man ever born of a woman more righteous, more wonderful? And that's something. And he said, he must increase. John the Baptist did, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. The more the pastor loves, the more he needs to be willing to be loved less. So you have the pastor's affection for his people. You have the pastor's affection for his people. Number two, you have the pastor's sacrifice for his people. The pastor's sacrifice for his people. Notice in verse, the second half of verse 1 and the first half of verse 2. He says, we thought it best to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. Strong affection always leads to sacrifice. I want you to write that down. Strong affection always leads to sacrifice. Love gives itself away for its object. Love gives itself away for its object. Selfless commitment to meet others' needs is the measure of true care for others. I want you to write that down. Selfless commitment to meet others' needs is the measure of true care for others. People say they care. Selfish people say they care. I want to tell you something. Selfish people don't care about anything but themselves. Because to truly care, you have to be selfless. This is the principle of Scripture. Selfishness, self-preservation is not about caring. It's about being selfish. It's about caring for one, one's own self. Paul exemplified that the reality, that reality when he sought the best to be left behind in Athens alone. His companion was Timothy. He decided to send him away. He was left alone and sent Timothy back to Thessalonica. The apostle used the plural pronoun you'll notice here. He says, we. He says right here in verse, verse 1, he says, we could no longer endure it. We thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother. There's the third person plural again. He uses the second person plural, we, we, and the third person plural, our Okay, And so Paul exemplifies this, and at times in his letter he appears to have an aversion to the pronoun I. He has, a, he has an aversion to the personal pronoun I. This is interesting as it's used, as, as if to use it was to breach his own humility. 
one of the, if you want to get rid of any word in your vocabulary, any word in your vocabulary to get rid of is the personal pronoun I. You will go far if you can get rid of that word, I. It seems that Paul didn't want to use that word here. He wanted, he was working out of his own humility and to use I was not to be humble for him. Paul initially came to Athens without Timothy, came to Athens without Timothy and Silas. We read in Acts 17, 14 from Thessalonica. And they eventually joined him there in verse 15. And after an intermediate period, Saul, Saul, Paul sent Timothy again to Thessalonica in chapter 18 of Acts to determine their condition as we read in verse 5 of this chapter, chapter 3. He apparently dispatched Silas somewhere in Macedonia, perhaps Philippi. And so for a second time, Paul was left behind at Athens alone. Now don't confuse that with Rome. Paul wasn't alone at Rome. He was chained to a Praetorian guard. He's at Athens alone. The verb translated to be left behind means to be abandoned. It means to be forsaken and was used in a secular context of leaving a loved one behind at death. This is the word he chose to use. He could have used any other word for left behind, but he chose this very powerful word that expresses the separation from his friends as if he was left behind as a dead man. Even though he could have benefited greatly from their assistance and fellowship in Athens, Paul thought it best to send his colleagues to Thessalonica and Macedonia for the well-being of the believers in that place. You see his sacrifice? His sacrifice for them? He sacrificed himself. Why? Because he had genuine selfless affection. Selfless affection leads to sacrifice. The kind of sacrifice Paul made indicates again the strength of his pastoral concern for the people at Thessalonica. For their sakes he gladly sent to them his most precious friends and fellow missionary, Timothy, his son in the faith. He gave him up to be left for dead is really how the Greek would read, at least in his feelings. And he dispatched to several of the churches his beloved son in the faith as his representative. And you see this in Corinth, you see it in Philippi, and again at, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, at Ephesus. So we learn something. Paul's warm and positive appellations for Timothy demonstrate a close, trusting relationship the apostle had with his colleague. And there's something we need to learn about that relationship because it's here in the text and it's important. Two things. First, Paul called him his brother. He called him his brother, which Timothy was as a fellow believer by the grace of God. We know this from 1 Timothy chapter 1 and 2 Timothy chapter 1, as well as Philippians chapter 1. And because of experience through the rigors that they had endured in ministering together in Acts 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20, we see that they were more than just spiritual brothers. They were colleagues in the faith. They were co-sufferers for Christ. Second, he refers to him not only in relation to himself, but specifically as God's fellow worker. And he says, Soon ergon totheo. He says, as it says, a minister, uh, that, is, that is simply that he is, is a startling truth that he was a fellow worker with the Holy One. 
He is a fellow worker of God. Synergon to Theon. It's important. He was a fellow worker of God just as much as Paul was, Timothy was. He worked with God because he, as Paul, faithfully proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ, we see this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 1, 6 through 7, and 4, 2 and 5. The salvation message is called the gospel three times in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Notice in verse 8. It says right here, So affectionately longing for you, we were pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God. Look down here at, 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 look down here at verse 9. He says right here, he says, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to you. We preached to you the gospel of God. And then go back to the beginning in verse 2. But even after we had suffered before, we were spitefully treated at Philippi. As you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. Who is it that's doing that? Paul and Timothy. Okay? Paul gave his description of a noble and beloved Timothy to emphasize how precious he was to him. And they also revealed to, and it also revealed to the Thessalonians Paul love and sacrifice to sending Timothy to them, leaving him alone as if he has been left having lost someone he loved to death, being alone. So let me just ask you two questions at this point. Do you genuinely have an affection for the people of God? Maybe, maybe you think, wherever you go to church, your pastor doesn't have enough affection for the congregation. Maybe you might think your pastor doesn't sacrifice, sacrifice enough for the congregation. Well, let me compare that to an illustration. Have you ever been around somebody and they wouldn't speak to you? They wouldn't talk to you? And you go home and you tell a loved one or a friend, you say, you know, I saw old John Doe down there and he wouldn't even speak to me. And then that person looked at you and said, well, did you say anything to him? And all of a sudden that feeling comes over you. Well, that's the same thing. You, you may feel, perhaps, even believe that your pastor is not affectionate enough. You may believe that your pastor is not sacrificing enough for the gospel. But the question I would ask you is, how much affection do you show? How much sacrifice have you, sac have you demonstrated? See, that's why this passage applies to all of us in the church. This is a sublime and a supreme example of what it means to be a Christian. Is that we have affection for one another. And we sacrifice for one another. And we can sacrifice for one another because we have a genuine selfless affection. But when it's all about you, that's all it's going to be about. And we live in, a, in, in some very selfish days today. We live in a time where people are buying into the idea that our chief end must be the self our self-preservation, the preservation of, of our, our identity, the preservation of our culture, the preservation of our livelihoods. I'm going to tell you what, you need to be 
committed to the preservation, that you're thinking on those things that are right, you need to guard your heart and mind. Because God's going to take care of His, and He's going to take care of those who don't. He's going to take care of His, and He's going to take care of those who don't. So though you may be casting aspersions or feeling a little bit like your minister doesn't show the affection you think he should, or that your minister doesn't sacrifice the way you think he should, the question must be asked of you. Do you show the affection you should? And do you sacrifice the way you should? You're not going to be judged for your minister. You're going to answer for your own actions. How are you doing on your affections and your sacrifice? Number three, the pastor's compassion for his people. Look at the rest of the text, uh, the second part of verse 2 through verse 4, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. Compassion, born of love, Compassion, born of love, motivated Paul to send Timothy back to Thessalonica to strengthen and encourage them. It was compassion that was born out of love. We see this right here in verse 2, 5, 6, 7, and 10, right here in chapter 3. Compassion, born of love, motivated Paul to send Timothy back to Thessalonica. This is not the faith that is the body of gospel truth, but it is the Thessalonians' belief in it. The Thessalonians' belief in this faith. As we learned in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 1, the Thessalonian believers constituted a model church with many noble virtues. They were still young, however, in the faith. They were still young in the faith, being tested by affliction and needed further guidance towards spiritual maturity. Look down here in verse 13 of chapter 3. So that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with His saints. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Finally, brethren, we urge you and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you received from us how you ought to walk to please God. Go down to verse 10 of chapter 4. And indeed you do so towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. You see, we see what a, Timothy's assignment was. Timothy's assignment was to go there to strengthen the Thessalonians' faith, to strengthen their faith, Strengthen means to support. It means to buttress something with the intent of establishing it permanently. With the intent of establishing it permanently. Strong faith is a result of knowing all that God has revealed. Now I'm going to tell you something. You're never going to know that apart from this. God has revealed everything we need to know for life and godliness in this book. Quit looking for revelation somewhere else. There isn't. It's in this book. Everything else is a feeling and 
probably a heresy. If it's not in the pages of Scripture, you can't really trust it for life and godliness. Strong faith is a result of knowing all that God has revealed. That's what leads to a permanent faith. And as firm a foundation, as there is nothing of a firmer foundation than sound doctrine. What is doctrine based upon? The Scriptures. Doctrine is not based upon man's interpretation. That's, a, that's an error. The Bible is full of doctrine. And doctrine is what we need to learn. So I want you to write this down. Write this down, please. No faith can be strong without knowledge and understanding of the truth. No faith can be strong without knowledge and understanding of the truth. Those who truly walk as giants of faith among us are not people who have checked off all the blanks. They are people who have pursued knowledge. They have pursued wisdom and are pursuing knowledge and are pursuing wisdom and genuinely reverence God in their heart, understanding He is holy. Those are the giants. But lest you think otherwise, we have plenty. We have more than enough folks that think because they've checked off the boxes. They have arrived, and I have found I've never been able to teach one of those. I have, and you know what? It's not my, it's, it's not my problem. Um, they resist the teaching of the Word. They think church is about how they feel. They think church is about how I deliver a sermon. They think church is about the color of the tie or the fit of the suit or the waving of the hands or the, the, the place where it's preached. That, that's, what they, that's what they're into. They cannot learn. They don't pray. They don't gather. They've checked off the boxes. They've been there. They've done that. But those who are growing in the Lord, their faith is vibrant. They're not, they are not of the world. They're in the world. And they are certainly not out of the world. Out of the world means they have completely left the world completely. That is contrary to what the Scripture says. Let your light shine. You cannot shine your light being out of the world. You can go hide in your home all you want because of germs and all other things. But I'm going to tell you something. You're not in the world. You're out of it. And by being so, you're acting of it. Christians are in the world. We're missionaries to a fallen world that is in trouble and travail. And it needs our light. It doesn't need our pontifications. It doesn't need anything except our compassion. It needs our affection. It needs our sacrifice. You say, well, that's why this passage is about pastors. No, this passage is about all those who are called to believe in Jesus Christ. He was to encourage them, which denotes coming alongside and motivating them to live that sound doctrine. That's just what pastors do. And that's what people in the church should do, to come alongside people and motivate them to live in sound doctrine, to live in sound truth. Thus Timothy's task was to make the foundation of the Thessalonians' faith solid and unwavering so they could have confidence to apply the truth. If anything is needed more today in my perspective as a pastor, it is to strengthen the faith of people because they're just wavering. They're wavering. And that they can have confidence to apply the truth of God. Brothers and sisters, Timothy conducted the sort of follow-up strengthening and encouraging ministry that Paul had done. For example, 
Paul and Barnabas and their entourage often returned to cities where they had previously taught. As we read in Acts 14, it says, After they had preached the gospel to that city, they made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Spiritual maturity is what Paul desired for the churches. He says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what is the riches of His glory, of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe. Most specifically, he told the Galatians that the goal of his labor for believers was that Christ be formed in them, and they had been bewitched by another gospel, an alt-gospel, an alternative gospel. Paul knew they faced what, he, what they faced, and he was disturbed, and he and and he could be disturbed by their afflictions, the pressure, and the test of faith and suffering. He could be disturbed by it. The verb rendered would be deserved. Sanesthai, sanesthai, originally designated the wagging of a dog's tail. Now listen to me, okay? This is an important word. Notice he says right here in the text. He says, he, he says to them that, that they would be, be disturbed. Let me, let me find it because, I, I, all right, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. Okay, so the idea is that like a dog wags its tail. Through the years it came, though, to mean to allure, fascinate, flatter, and beguile. So my two Labradors sleep in my bedroom. Olive sleeps normally by me, and Hershey sleeps uh, at the foot of the bed. But whenever Hershey, my brown lap, sleeps by my bed, when I move in the middle of the night, she begins to wag her tail. And if any of you have ever been a Labrador retriever, had know, know about labs or have had a lab, you know their tail is a weapon. And uh, besides my, beside my bed, I keep a... Uh, I keep a jug of water uh, for, for my uh, hydration in the middle of the night. It's just easy. And when Olive is over there, if I move in the bed, that tail begins to wag and she hits that, she, hit, she begins to hit that jug of water. Boom, 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 boom. Wakes my wife up, wakes me up. And what is she wanting? She wants attention. That's what this idea here, sanestai. In fact, it'll make you go insane as thigh if it goes on all, all night long. The dog wags its tail, and it does so to draw attention to itself and gain something it wants. Olive wants to get up, and, and Hershey want to get up and play. That's what they want. So this root word from sane later referred to a person who tried to flatter or beguile other people. So that's what's taking place here, that you would be disturbed, that you would be, that someone would come in and begin to wag their mouth like a dog wags its tail and would begin to flatter you, to fascinate you, to allure you, to beguile you. My friends, it doesn't take any effort to turn on the TV and see this happening today. I mean, you can watch some of the, the programs on television today on the church channels and, and you will see nothing more than excellence in dog wagging, dog tail wagging. 
and you will see the masses of people there listening to it. If Paul was alive today, he would be writing these same words to us because there are many who are being disturbed by these afflictions and they are losing their minds because of the allurement and fascination and flattery and beguiling of those from outside or in church who are carrying them off spiritually with unsound, untrue teachings. They sound good, but they're not true. Church exists to raise up people to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It does not exist for you to come to church and enjoy it and feel better about yourself. It exists for God. That is the purpose of worship. It is Him alone that deserves our attention. We are the performers on the stage and He is the audience. He is not the performer and we're the stage. It doesn't work and we're the audience. It didn't work like that. We're the performers. And He is the audience testing our hearts and the reins of our minds. So Paul didn't want anyone to lure the Thessalonians away from the truth in that manner because they had been more vulnerable by persecution and suffering. And they're suffering. And sadly enough, I'm, I've, there's people I love that are being carried away. Not necessarily by religious falsehoods, but by secular falsehoods. From the zeal and from the faith, they, they can talk a good talk, but their actions prove it. Their actions speak louder than the words are being carried away. Paul would say in this text, he says, you need to understand I've sent Timothy to you to strengthen your faith. So, well, I, I don't have a Timothy in my life. Well, God gave you a local pastor and He puts you in a local church. And you're supposed to do church with people, not by yourself, not pajama church, not couch church. You're supposed to do it with people so that you can experience the affection you can experience the sacrifice. You can experience the compassion firsthand. You can't experience any of that sitting at home. And you may have grand or lofty reasons, and I can think of some medical reasons perhaps that you cannot be there. But for the most part, people have given up the forsaking of meeting together, and they've made all their excuses for it. And you know, it's just time to be called out what it is. It's just a lie. You're lying to yourself, and you're not hurting anyone but yourself. You certainly don't have any affection. You're certainly not willing to sacrifice, and you certainly don't have compassion for your fellow believers. You just eat up with selfishness. That's just the truth. And the sad part is your faith is not being established. It's being taken away because something has allured you away. Something has fascinated you. Something has beguiled you. Something has, has flattered you. You've seen another tail wagging, and you've given it your attention. And you say, oh yeah, but I listened to it online. It's not the same thing. You need to come and be a part of the people of God. Come home. Come home. Or be what you really are. Quit playing around with the truth. Be what you really are. You've fallen away. You've just fallen away. It's one of the things that I made a prediction about a year ago when COVID broke out. We're going to see the great falling away begin to happen. You've just fallen away. You've convinced yourself. I mean, is it not true a fool convinced against his will is of the same opinion still? And again, I, I understand there are medical reasons you cannot be there. I understand that. That makes sense to me. 
There are, there's oxes, there's oxen that fall in the ditch. There are things like that. But for the most part, that's not the circumstance of people. Those who have chosen to go away, they're doneers. They're just done with church. Because they don't, you know what, they feel like they haven't gotten any affection. They feel like they have not gotten any sacrifice poured out on them. They don't feel like they've gotten any compassion. But I guarantee you if we went and talked to those people and asked them, well, how much affection, how much sacrifice, and how much compassion have you shown, they're going to be left wanting. Because I'm going to tell you something, Jesus got it right when He said, we judge people out of our own sin. We judge people out of our own sin. The apostle reminded them all that believers should expect tribulation and persecution. You should expect that because we have all been destined for such temporal difficulties. We're going to face it. We're going to face it. And the, how we face it is going to demonstrate how much we believe, how much really we believe. Actually, it's not clear in verse 3 whether, we, whether, the, re, whether the we that he uses here refers primarily to Paul or to the Thessalonians. Um, I just want to give you a wide view of it. I'm going to skip a part. And it's simply this, that Paul's statement is a reminder to the Thessalonians and all Christians that you, you and I need to expect affliction. We need to expect it. Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Jesus will be persecuted. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. If you're not being persecuted, well, then you're probably not seeking a godly life. You're no threat to the devil. You're no threat to this world. You probably haven't been showing any affection or any sacrifice or any compassion to anybody else. You say, well, I love them. Prove it. Prove it with your affection. Prove it with your sacrifice. Prove it. Prove it with your compassion. Paul did. He left himself the comfort of friends. It's not the Bible. Does not the Bible say it's not good for man to be alone, and yet Paul knew that he would be alone, and he sacrificed for the people at Thessalonica. He gave, he gave all that he had, his best friend, to that ministry to strengthen them. Maybe some of you in the last five or ten minutes, you've gotten offended with what I've said. First of all, I, I want you to know I can't take any responsibility for you being offended. That's your choice. But if you'll listen, you'll understand the reason you feel the way you do is because you are convicted. And that's what the Word of God does. It convicts. Those aren't my words. It's the Word's Word. You're convicted. There is no affection. There is no sacrifice. And there's no compassion for your fellow believers. It's all about what you can get out of it. And you think it's the way your pastor should act when in fact the pastor equips the sheep to go do the ministry out there amongst the larger sheepfold of life. Because remember, the pastor is the shepherd. He's not the sheep. And, and shepherds don't reproduce sheep. Sheep reproduce sheep. You need to make a decision. You need to draw a line in the sand. You need to make a decision today. Either I'm going to do it or I'm not. You need to decide that. Either I'm going to be a person of affection, sacrifice, and compassion. I'm going to operate out of a selfless love for the church of the living God and its believers. Or you're just going to be a whitewashed tomb. I think that's what Jesus would call it, a whitewashed tomb. Peter said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad that your reward is in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets 
who were before you. What did the prophets do? They had an affection. They had a sacrifice and a compassion for the people. They said to them hard truths. Some of them lost their lives for it. They said hard truths. You're not being persecuted, dear friend. I want you to know if you feel all of a sudden you're being attacked and you're showing no affection, compassion, or sacrifice. You're not being attacked for the gospel of Jesus. You're sure not being persecuted for the gospel of Christ Jesus if you're hiding at your house, not coming out and being seen in the light of day, not belonging to the people of God, not giving your best to them, not letting your light shine. You're not being persecuted. But I'm going to tell you something. Afflictions are going to come to those who desire to be godly. And you're not going to be godly hiding at the house either. There is no such thing in Christianity as a covert Christian, an undercover agent. There's no such thing as that. Our light is to shine. Even Jesus said, we are lights. Uh, we are cities on a hill. You need to let your light shine. You need to light your, let your light shine. And so I want you to understand something here. The widest interpretation which Paul includes here, the believers with this statement is that we're all going to suffer affliction. So come on in the pool of affliction. Come join in. Come get involved. You know why? Because we're going to be affectionate towards one another. We're going to sacrifice for one another. We're going to be compassionate with one another. We're going to help each other. We're in this together. You need to come get in the together part. This isn't just for the pastor. This is for you. In fact, it's more for you than it is the pastor. But you know what? You need to do this for your pastor. You need to show him affection. You need to show him sacrifice. You need to show him compassion. He carries a whole lot more weight than you do because he carries the souls of men and he's got to an answer for it. You don't. That's what Paul writes to Colossians. You need to pray. You need to show, you need to show um, affection and sacrifice and compassion to your pastor, whoever he is, because he's a teacher and he's going to have to be judged more strictly than you are. Quit waiting for him to show it to you. Show him how to do it if he doesn't know how to do it. Teach him. Let him learn from your example. Remember, we're all in this together. And so to make sure the Thessalonians got his point, Paul reminded them that indeed when he was with them, he told them in advance that they were going to suffer earthly afflictions. So I want to give you a quote from a man named William Hendrickson as I conclude. Afflictions that have been predicted and that take place in accordance with this prediction serve to strengthen faith. So quit running away from affliction. They are there to strengthen your faith. They're there to help you learn how to show affection and, sac and be sacrificial and show compassion to those who need it. So in conclusion, Paul's narrative implies seven elements of, a, of an exemplary pastor's heart, and I might add, as I have shown you, of an exemplary church member, one who has affection for the people of God, one who sacrifices for the people of God, and one who has compassion for the people of God. And so thus ends the lesson. This is the Word of God. I hope truly you will take this to heart, and you will look at yourself in the mirror, and you will study to show yourself a person who is full of affection, who is full of sacrifice, and is full of compassion for the people of God. May God bless you. May He add His blessings to the preaching of His Word. And may you go and do likewise. God bless you.